They're some of the most famous crime movies of all time and have left gangsters and their glamorous malls forever embedded in popular culture. Now Crime World is going to make you an offer you can't refuse. In association with Dingo Whiskey and the Sunday World magazine, we'll be recording an exclusive invite-only live show on December 1st in Dublin's Sugar Club. And for a chance to win tickets, all we want are your views and your votes. Over the coming weeks, we will be reviewing our top 10 iconic movies with some special guests as part of the Dingle Whiskey Movie Club on Crime World. And we want you to vote for your favourites to be in to win. Details on sundayworld.com and Crime World's Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And remember, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. He finally pleaded guilty to 22 separate charges of supplying 10 connected with murders. And Johnny Dare liked him. In fact, he described him to me as a hero. He was a hero then, and he's a hero now, he said. The official line is there was no collusion. But without a doubt, uh, the, the RUC investigations show that it was there. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Suggestions of collusion between security forces and loyalist paramilitaries has long been denied when it comes to Northern Ireland's troubles. But it seems that the passage of time has a way of unearthing deeply hidden secrets. Today... I'm talking to Sunday World journalist Hugh Jordan about some of the historical murder cases which show concerning links to security forces. He tells me about the Ulster Major and his female sidekick who passed information to Protestant paramilitary killers who went on to target an innocent Catholic man. About the elite commando who fed information to mad dog Johnny Adair and about the Violent Sea Company and their belief they could ethnically cleanse Northern Ireland. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. These stories that are coming out, and you've had two really significant ones over the past couple of weeks, Hugh, why are they coming out now? Is it because of the passage of time or are there some documents now available that you can get access to? Um, They're coming out now because the information... uh, Enough time has passed for people to feel Comfort. relaxed enough to speak about it because it's, it's not going to come back on them. And uh, it's, they're all a long time ago, but collusion was a long time ago. And uh, it's, it's, it's relevant uh, to what happened in the past, but people feel much more confident about speaking about it. So its sources belonging to you rather than anywhere else that you're getting these stories because they are really significant in the tapestry of what happened in the past in Northern Ireland and the kind of level of uh, the level of collusion that was going on, but the kind of people who were giving pieces of information and how important they were. And it was actually just talking over the last couple of weeks in relation to organised criminals and, you know, I suppose, paying members of the police forces to take get a little bit of information. It's the tiniest little bit of information that can lead to something so significant. So in the case of Derek William Adji, and we'll talk about him, but 
he was able to dip into a system and find an address. The Provisional IRA had a, st- had a slogan for many years saying, collusion is not an illusion. Mm. And they were, they were criticised for it. It wasn't true. There was no such thing as collusion. But there was collusion. And, but you're correct when you say about the tiniest little thing. Because both these cases that we're going to discuss today were solved by a tiny giveaway by Derek Adjie in the first instance, where he tells another soldier, I gave that information to Johnny mm. Adair. And secondly, uh, the, the Greenfinch in, in, the, in the Colonel, in the major case, uh, she says to an other soldier, they got the wrong man. The wrong man. So, and in the Greenfinch case, and again, we'll come on to it, but it seems as if there was more voluminous files being kind of like squirreled away in yeah. that case, whereas in the Agi case, it's literally an address. Yes, but it's a lot of addresses. It's a, it's, and uh, it's, a, it's uh, that it, address, when you, when you see what happens, what they do with that piece of information, it allows the loyalists in and out of an area within... That they're not hanging around; yeah, they know it, where they're going. It, it's pinpointed, and uh, I mean, the, the the so the whole operation can be done very, very quickly. I mean, I remember studying one case that that uh, the notorious UDAC company under Johnny Adair did, and from start to finish, the operation took twenty minutes, and somebody's dead at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, from leaving the base to being back home safely. Uh, uh, with a dead target, mm. uh, it took twenty minutes. Absolutely mm. remarkable. So, so let's start because it's 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 the earlier story, nineteen eighty eight, with yeah. the story of Major Cameron Hasty. Yeah, and just set the scene for us: what Belfast was like then, what was going on, and how many soldiers were sort of based up here, what their living conditions were like, and what sort of access they had to. Uh, to intelligence, I suppose. Well, in 1988, Nicola, Belfast was a tense place. We're, we're two years after the Anglo-Irish Agreement was signed, giving the southern state a say in northern affairs for the first time. Loyalism was in a state of flux. What to do about it? The loyal, unionist politicians had pulled out of, of, of government. There were elections after elections, but the, the Tory government weren't for moving. It never changed. The, the Anglo-Irish Agreement was there right up until the Good Friday Agreement. So Belfast was a tense enough place, especially when nighttime fell. Uh, the, the, the city was still patrolled by the RUC and the British Army were on the streets. Uh, so uh, Corporal Cameron Hasty, as, as he was then, was in the, the Royal Scots Regiment. And uh, he came from Edinburgh. He didn't come from a posh part of Edinburgh, but he was a strong, fit young man. And you see pictures of him in his uniform from those days. He's, he's proud of himself. Mm. On his Facebook page, he showed his, his own image walking along the streets of Belfast with his earpiece in and his rifle in, in his hand. So obviously in those days, soldiers had very little means of recreation. So recreation and, and, and downtime was held within the army barracks. And in North Belfast, which which bridged the gap between West Belfast and North Belfast, there was Girdwood Barracks, where his regiment, the Royal Scots Regiment, were based. 
And presumably they didn't mix. They weren't really totally welcome within the community. They were living on a barracks and they just mixed with one another. Oh, totally. They totally never went out socialising. You've got to remember there was this earlier case in the 70s where three young Scottish soldiers were befriended by IRA people and then executed. So after that, they were off the streets. Mm. So very much stuck behind the army barrack wall. And there would be, they always tended to be a... Well, where there was access to loyalist areas, young women were invited to attend discos, and the, of course, the Ulster Defence Regiment had a, had a, had female members known as Green Finches, and they would attend these uh, discos and bring their friends, and they would sign for their friends. So, uh, Corporal Hasty, as he was then, uh, used to court some local women. At these things, the Ulster Defence Regiment had a female section known as Greenfinches, and they would some of them would attend the the discos and bring their friends, local girls uh, from the Protestant community, totally, and uh, they would meet the likes of uh, Corporal Hasty there. So he befriended a number of them, and that's how this uh, the, uh, story started. Mm. Mm. So, in outside, obviously, these barracks, what you had was a very tense situation. You had Johnny Adair's C Company, who were baying for Catholic, for Republican blood, weren't they? And they were, in any way, they were they were literally looking to slaughter. Am I right in saying that, what they could? I know you have a, 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 a kind of more modern relationship with him now and you understand more about what he was doing, but it would seem from the outside that they were looking for any IRA well, people they could to kill. What happened, Nicola, was that the, the Loyalists, both sections, had upped the ante after the signing of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. But Adair's team, the C Company on the lower shankle, took it to a new level. And he he had this skill to get the best of intelligence information. It came to him from all sorts of sources, and his his money increased. Uh, people, well connected people within unionism, were 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 making huge donations, so he could afford to plan things uh, properly. And and was he paying for information? He wouldn't be, pay, no, all this information came to him from sympathetic yeah, sources. Yeah, people who believed that what he was doing was right. Was right, that mm. they couldn't do. And in, in, in all of these cases, uh, there was an element of frustration by the security the members of the security forces who illegally passed information to mm. him. But he, they, what they had was the information of the people that the security forces believed were directing the IRA campaign and they were prepared to pass it on to the likes of Johnny Adair. And that, that's, that's what happened in these cases. So Johnny Adair, in a way, got lucky because of this, uh, what we now look on as being an odd way to live in a, in a barracks like that with women being brought in for discos. But he got lucky because Corporal Hasty was there. He was young. Can we say he was slightly naive? And he was asked for a little piece of information by one of these green finch, finch women who came in yeah. and he gave it. Yes, but where did it start? It started with, it was a taxi service uh, owned by a local paramilitary figure. All the taxi drivers were connected to paramilitary organisations. And one of them, 
who actually was a UVF figure, lent on 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 Greenfinch Garvin, if she ever had the opportunity to uh, to pass on information, uh, would she do so? And, and now, this was Joanne Garvin, who was uh, she appears to have had either relatives or close associates who were murdered in the course of the Troubles. Well, she claimed that uh, when she was speaking to uh, Corporal Hasty, but it turned out she didn't have any. Mm. It was just that was a, an excuse uh, to, to start the conversation. She claimed she had a brother when she, when she first spoke to Corporal Hasty that her brother claimed her brother had been followed home and he was concerned about the registration numbers of strange cars that had been seen in the street. And that was her excuse to ask him. And uh, he supplied the information of a number of people uh, who were allegedly connected to the IRA. He did it. Uh, she, in turn, passed it on to the taxi drivers who passed it on to the paramilitary organizations and they acted on it. Now, that's a very uh, simplistic way of explaining it. Was there a relationship going on or was there any situation, any suggestion that that she was, you know, going to this disco and maybe she slightly used hasty or what was her motivation? Did she just get charmed by a taxi driver some night? No, I think she had sympathies for for the the loyalist cause. I mean, where she came from was was totally behind the the loyalist cause, although her family weren't. Her mm. family were genuinely uh, members of of the British Army. Traditionally, she fell into that, but her sympathies and her her her, her experience growing up was totally uh, d- defending the loyalist cause. Uh, on the relationship side of it, she told me herself that uh, Corporal Hasty was in a romantic relationship with her friend, so uh, mm-hmm. he was safe and uh, happy in their company. And it wouldn't have been too much trouble to him to supply a bit of information that he thought there would be no comeback on. And what happened with the information that she gave on over to the the taxi driver? Well, the the case that I studied was the the murder of a man called uh, Terry McDade, who came from the the Newington area of North Belfast, which was not, was a short distance from Girdwood Barracks. And Terry McDade was 30 years of age and a father of two. He had no connection whatsoever to uh, the IRA. However, he had a brother who had served time uh, uh, for Republican con- uh, offences, and uh, but he, he lived at home in Newington Avenue, and the night that he was killed, uh, every... The same night every week, his mother and father came down to visit him and his wife and his children. And uh, they were all, children had just gone to bed. They were sitting watching television and chatting about what was on TV when suddenly the door came in around them and standing in front of them were two loyalist figures from Johnny Adair's uh, notorious C Company. One of the figures we now know was a, a Skelly, a, a McCrory, Johnny Adair's right-hand man, and uh, they, they, they fired a series of automatic shots and uh, hit Terry McDade a number of times, 
and uh, and he died. And his wife tells a terrifying story about sitting, watching them burst into the sitting room and just open fire on her husband. He obviously died before her eyes. Yes. Um, the information that was passed through, let's say, through this disco meeting um, by Hasty to Joanne Garvin, was that an intelligence file on his brother? Or why was Terry McDade's address... Well, I assumed that uh, before moving to his own house nearby, Terry, uh, Terry McDay's brother possibly lived at the same address. And, uh, but, but however, the an intelligence file may have contained, uh, if there's more than one brother in a family, may have contained something. But uh, it's a strange thing was uh, the corporal in handing over the documents claimed that he told Joanne Garvin to check the addresses. But whether that was done or whether it wasn't, we'll never know. One way or another, the wrong address was given yes. and an innocent man died because yes. of that little piece of information that was passed. So the consequences, obviously, for the MacDade family continue to this day and his children and possibly grandchildren and wider family um, have been traumatised all their lives by it. But what happened those that gave out that little piece of information that resulted in his death? Well, good good question. Uh, the, the, the investigation into it started uh, in the, the canteen at Girdwood Barracks when there was a discussion amongst members of the UDR and possibly other regiments of the British Army and in that conversation, Joanne Garvin said, yes, but they got the wrong man. Now, this was quite... She just made that remark in the yeah. middle of the canteen. Yes, but it was soon, very soon after the event, there had been no public discussion that the wrong man, no one really knew who the target really was at that stage. But she said this, which was an indication that she had some inside information. She was put under surveillance and it emerged that she had a connection to Corporal Hasty, mm. and both were arrested uh, as, a, as, a, as a result of her slip of the tongue in the canteen. And they both ended up before the courts in the, Belfast the, where they pleaded guilty, so no evidence came no, about. No, no evidence was released. But, oddly enough, what did they get for a sentence for such a, a major... Uh, crime. Mm. They both got eighteen months suspended, and uh, and and she was booted out the UDR almost immediately, and has never really got over her experience. She told me, uh, but by total, uh, almost the reverse. Corporal Hasty remained in the army and had, and went on to and retired as a major. But as we were discussing, he was a good rugby player and that sometimes can get people very far in life. Well, I think that's exactly the key to to, to uh, Hasty's success. Uh, he became known as what they called a, 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 a rugby major. He, he not only played for the British Army, he, he coached and was a senior coach for many years in the Army and he even was, received a civic uh, honour in the city of Edinburgh, uh, for for his, uh, his his services to 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 decent society, but he kept very quiet 
about what happened in Belfast. You see, I'm actually less surprised by his story than I am by hers because like as a as an outsider, I suppose you, you hear collusion and you always think it is absolute top end that everybody in charge knew what was happening. But I'm quite surprised that they acted upon what they heard her say, launched an investigation, brought the two of them before the courts and actually, you know, cut her adrift. I mean, you've you got to remember an awful lot of loyalists were jailed. They didn't just go in with their hands up. They, they, went, in, they went to jail because the RUC prosecuted them mm. and charged them with serious offences, including collusion, you know. Uh, so it did exist, but the day-to-day working of it tended to be based on, on uh, tribal sympathies rather than uh, a, a great technique of how to penetrate uh, government secrets. And clearly, if you were good at rugby, you were forgiven quicker than if you were just an ordinary Joe Soap at the yeah. beginning of a career. Yeah. Um, Joanne Garvin, is she still living up in the yeah. north of Ireland? Yes, before writing this, this story, I, I tracked her down to the family home and we we had a long conversation on our, on our doorstep. Uh, she's very open about what happened. And what does she feel about her actions now? She was a very young woman, probably well, she, influenced she, by the times. She was, but she felt that she, and she's correct in this, that she suffered uh, a, a, a greater penalty than, than than Corporal Hasty, who went on to become a major. She, her, her life was really devastated as a result. There was a kind of shame within the family mm. who had been a, a military family. Her her father and grandfather before her had all served in, in both world wars. And uh, so she, she told me her life was never really the same again. And would she have been under threat herself from the provisional IRA or did they know about her because of the guilty pleas and no evidence coming out in court? Did they, were they aware of it? Well, I think she was so far down the ranks mm. of, of their intended uh, targets that they would have that they, that they never never went for her. But she's she's cautious and afraid uh, that, that when I was writing the story, I had to make sure it didn't reveal any personal details of her whereabouts, etc. So to live with her forever, her actions. Um, Johnny Adair and his C Company were obviously absolutely adept at getting these pieces of information because some years later, um, they managed to, would you say, turn, or he was turned already himself, um, Derek William Adji, somebody who gave them probably even more information that led to more murders. Yeah, the story of Derek William Adjie is quite remarkable, and even in Belfast terms. Derek Adjie lived on the Malone Road, very smart part of the city. His dad was a businessman. They they manufactured metal shutters for for shops. And his mum was Chilean. His mum was a member of uh, uh, the congregation at St. Bride's Catholic Church on the Malone Road. And... uh, Derek went to Methody College, uh, a very prestigious college near near the university. That was his secondary school. And both he and one of his brothers joined the Marines. And uh, he had be, he, he was in a special, they came to Belfast uh, after, uh, joining the Marines was a tough, uh, a, a tough initiation uh, course to go through to even become a Marine. But both him and his brother, uh, got through it and 
became Marines in Belfast. Derek was stationed in West Belfast. And it was at the time, the early 90s, when the provisional IRA had great success, particularly in South Armagh, with one sniper. They thought it was one, it turned out it was three. And soldiers were being picked off very cleverly, very skillfully, one bullet. So Adji was aware of this. He was also out in patrol, and his his unit, who were known as the Bootnecks, uh, were attacked twice, uh, once with a coffee jar bomb and secondly by a rocket attack. And I think the rocket attack finished him. He decided he wanted to do something about it. So how, did, how does he contact in his... Belfast experience, he didn't know anyone who was in loyalist paramilitaries. But Johnny Adair's name was well known. Because he would have been middle class, yeah, coming from where he did, extremely. Very much so, very much so. Mm. Uh, And he he literally walked up the Shankled Road, known loyalist area, traditional loyalist area, the heartland of both the Adair's section of the UDA and the UVF. And he walked into a loyalist club and asked for Johnny Adair. Johnny Adair wasn't there, uh, but one of his cohorts was, a man called Donald Hodgen, and he spoke to him. And uh, then word was sent to Adair that uh, he may uh, be interested to talk to this man. He wanted to help him. Immediately, alarm bells went in Adair's head. This is a setup. This is an MI5 plan to try and entrap him. And he wisely decided he wouldn't go, but he sent an emissary on, on his behalf just to test the water. And finally, he decided this was worth a try, and he agreed to meet Aji. And he told me himself that he, he put Aji, set Aji a series of tests. He said Aji didn't know it at the time, but I was interrogating him. And he successfully came through everything, even to the point of uh, mock uh, operations were set up on Aji's evidence. And the, the, the loyalists involved did not have any weapons with them. This was in case it was a trap, but there was no trap. So he realized Aji was genuine. Would they have put him under surveillance, Aji? No, but I don't know if they had the ability to be able to do that because mm. immediately left, he was going back to the the, the army base. Right. And, so uh, they wouldn't have known who he was fraternizing no, within there no. or speaking to. So they decided to take a, a chance yeah. on his information. And um, Aji, Aji proved good. And, uh, and John Adair liked him. In fact, he described him to me as a hero. He was a hero then and he's a hero now, he said. And again, Aji was able to furnish them with addresses, with intel about who's who, and give them kind of an idea of who they should target. Yes. He finally pleaded guilty to 22 separate charges of supplying 10 connected with murders and and, and another 12 connected just with supplying information. But they were serious charges. So 10 murders happened Supplying information because of the information to, he supplied. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quite remarkable. And how was he caught? How was he caught? Uh, by Adair said he was caught by his own pride, because he was happy that he had done something that the provisional IRA uh, suffered as a result of his information, and he something came on the evening news, 
and it, it mentioned the C company operation and IG made the fatal mistake of in front of his, his military colleagues said, I gave Johnny the information for that. And uh, uh, he very soon after that was arrested and uh, and taken to Castlereagh for interrogation. I spoke to the policeman who interviewed him. He initially uh, denied everything, but within an hour, he, he 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 put his hand up and accepted that he was guilty. That he'd done it. Yeah, and he would have had access to. I mean, were you talking then paper files? Yeah, he he would have. Uh, he he did remove paper files and he 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 delivered them when he was posted to England he had a female accomplice we can name her now Jackie Newell was her name she was a member of Adair's team and uh, his her address was used and 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 Derek Hadji posted detailed information from army barracks in England to her house on the Shankill Road mm. and again like is somebody like Aji, I'm sure there's so many more people out there who were involved in this collusion, mm-hmm. um, higher levels than him and, you know, many at the lower levels who obviously felt passionate against mm-hmm. the provost or vice versa if they were giving information the other way. But um, when somebody in that situation makes a remark like that while watching the television, they have to investigate them. They cannot actually yes, ignore yeah. it. But... Mm-hmm. Do you think in many cases the sort of upper echelons of the army and the policing authorities that they turned a blind eye to what their own were doing? I think it would all come down to individual uh, loyalties uh, and and many of them uh, would have had sympathy for anyone who was working against Mm. the provisional IRA. So it would come down to that. uh, But I found within the RUC... There was a determination with uh, many honourable officers to do something about it. Mm-hmm. As I say, they didn't go into jail with their hands up. They were investigated and, and properly prosecuted by a sincere and decent policemen. And what happened, Aji? He admitted what well, he him, had done. Uh, he went to court. Him and Jackie Newell uh, both went to court, uh, charged with the same uh, thing, uh, Aji got four years, and I think she got two, and uh, which was incredibly short. Incredibly short, short given short that there was, they were linking yeah. it to ten murders. Yes, yes, and uh, but but again, by the guilty plea, uh, a lot of it is swept under the carpet. And interestingly, the judiciary, the judge said very sympathetic. He had some sympathy for Aji's frustration. However, he had crossed the line. But, I mean, I find it remarkable that a judge would even say things like that, but it did happen. And so what happened to him? And he was still only a young man yeah, at the well, time he was coming out of jail. Well, he went to jail and he served it here in, in McGilligan Prison up near the, 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 the across the water from Donegal. And he disappeared from, from public view. But I've, I've, I've since found out in writing this that after coming out of jail, he made contact with Adair. He wanted to speak to him to kind of go over things, and and he eventually did did meet him in Belfast, and they had a long chat. And Adair gave him something to remember him by. It was a, some kind of memento. I don't know what it was. He never told me, but he said Derek was very pleased 
to receive this from him. So Derek Agee disappeared. No one ever heard from him again. And then suddenly we did hear from him. Where was he? He was in Iraq working for a security company and he, he, he was in possession of an assault rifle and a handgun. He, he skipped through the, the net, one of these security companies who sacked him immediately. Uh, I think it was the Belfast Telegraph mm-hmm. brought, it to, brought it to their attention and, uh, and he was dismissed from his, his job. Um, I think today he, he, he teaches people to ski. And uh, that's that's his. Where it'll avoid him? Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in Europe. I'm led to believe. Somewhere in Europe. That's a lot of not skiing places, isn't it? Um, look, I mean, there's so many of these stories out there. Obviously, you're only scratching the surface with yeah. two incredible tales that Aye. have kind of emerged as time has either healed or given people confidence now to come forward. But what's interests me is when you say you spoke to Joanne Garvin, you tracked her down, the Greenfinch who gave that information to the taxi driver that resulted in the, uh, you know, in, in the death of an innocent man, Terry McDade, in front of his wife. She's talking to you. She doesn't slam the door in your face. She talks to you. It's almost cathartic for her maybe to to come out with it, to, to, to detail her truth. Yeah. So... Like, why isn't this being done on a basis like, I mean, why isn't this being done by some sort of a national forum up here that they're trying to wheedle out these stories and work out and learn from them? Yeah, well, there was there was the, the official denial that, that it happened play, mm. plays a part in this. But I think, Nicola, that the interesting thing in both these cases is who who got off lately and who who did quite well out yeah. of thing, you know, and who suffered. So without a doubt, the two people who suffered here were Joanne Garvin and and uh, Derek Agee. And, and and Derek Agee, that's right. Uh, but he didn't do too badly either because he got himself another job. Yeah. And uh, it was only... Well, in Iraq, yeah, come on. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. exactly yes, Monaco. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, but with, without doubt, uh, jo- Joanne suffered yeah. uh, badly. And uh, uh, she was open with me. And uh, I think she, she was happy to talk about it because uh, it had such a devastating effect on her life. And what is the official read on this collusion issue up here? Uh, the, the, the official line is there was no collusion. None. None, none. But without a doubt, uh, the, the RUC investigations show that it was there. Mm-hmm. But they, they, but they, they prosecuted people uh, they, at, at all sorts of levels. Uh, and, and, and they successfully prosecuted uh, RUC officers. Mm. who were in their own ranks, who were also uh, at this game of, of colluding with with terrorists. Mm. So the official line is, there's nothing to see here. Mm-hmm. And yet you're finding stories all the time, which you as a journalist yeah. are able to investigate and yeah. find the truth of. And you're finding very interesting details of obvious collusion, mm-hmm. uh, some policing of it and some... While some people are 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 major, as he ended up hasty, ends up being decorated. Yes, yeah. But in in a society like Northern Ireland, more then than now, Nicola, you will always have 
uh, people's natural tribal loyalties plays a role in this. But the RUC, a much maligned police force, did successfully weed out and prosecute, even within their own ranks. Mm. But, uh, I mean, an organization at one point, 15,000 members strong, you are going to have quite mm. a high representation. 15,000? 15,000 Just at in one, the north? Yeah, and police officers. That's like this, I mean, I don't think there's that many Guardi in, in the entire republic. No, 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 of course there wasn't. And that's before the army then? Yeah, before the army, you know. Yeah. So you're going to have yeah. uh, people who are prepared to uh, pass on information if it, if it doesn't come back to them. It's, mm-hmm. it's inevitable. But uh, what happened in the end up, as regards the Ulster Defence Regiment, in the end, before it was uh, amalgamated with the Royal Irish Regiment, uh, the, the Royal Ulster Constabulary refused to brief, hold any briefings when there were UDR members there, they wouldn't They wouldn't do it. Johnny Adair seems to be very open with you these days and y- you have a good kind of a conversations with him. Uh-huh. Um, so y- you've approached him, for example, in connection with the Agi story and he has confirmed it. He's mm-hmm. quite happy to confirm it. He obviously holds a huge amount of information about what went on up here during a period of time. He must be a mine of information and some of it we can presume he'll never reveal, or is he at a stage in life that he's... No, he, he doesn't. Uh, he, he, has, he has a mine of information, mm. a, quite a remarkable recall of detail, absolute detail. A bit like he, yourself, two peas <laughs> in a pod. <laughs> and he, he, he can re- recall things that he was involved in and also other people and the the older he's getting older now we're all getting older but he is able to put it into a historical context and he knows exactly what his role was and the historical position of of all around him he knows what happened to them and and the steps taken to remove him from the scene but i've never met anyone who was involved in this to have the recall Mm. Uh, that Johnny Adair has. But yet he won't willingly give out those secrets, I imagine. No, I mean, he, he still has loyalties. It's a, it's a lifestyle nearly, yeah, that sort he, of a Marsha thing. He has loyalties and, and his discussions with me, I wouldn't say they were guarded, but he's careful that he's not going to implicate anyone or even himself mm. in, 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 in any illegal actions. But he is prepared, happy enough to discuss it in a historical way and I was able to tell him what I'd found out about Derek Adji and he was... Uh, happy enough to confirm. And of course, in the case of these ones that we're talking about, we have convictions. So yes. they have yeah. either admitted it themselves. Yes. So he's he's not actually touting or he's not actually giving no, you information no. that isn't there in, no. the, yeah. in the thing. But he presumably has a lot more. And, uh, you know, a lot more people came to his people and gave information, we can imagine, who were never caught, never That's convicted, it. and who were out there somewhere. Yes. Um hoping for his silence. No, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when him and his great friend, uh, Sam Skelly McCrory, were discussing their past enterprises. It would have been a remarkable uh, thing to witness. Mm, mm. Well, I'm sure there's many more of these stories to come. And 
you're always up to something whenever I speak to you, sniffing around some <laughs> corner of Belfast or beyond. So no doubt we'll hear more of them. It's really, it's really interesting the way they're emerging at this stage. So Hugh, Jordan, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.